it's really, uh, I want to thank you for inviting me to be here this morning. I wanted to kind of begin by sharing a little bit about my life story, just a little background. Uh, my father uh, is German, and my mother was born in New York City, Long Island. Uh, my mother was visiting Mexico City when I met my father, uh, which my father's father was killed by the Nazis. Uh, he had fled to Mexico City, and this is where we established our family in, uh, at the age of 10 years of age. Uh, because of the circumstances, I had grown up in a uh, home of violence. My father was an alcoholic and a very abusive person uh, to the family, to my mother. And of course, uh, I used to stand up to my father because of what he did to my mom. And so I used to get physically, violently be beat up all the time. And so in 1957, my father uh, came home one night and he was just totally so messed up, uh, drinking and abusive. And my mother already had made some plans to come to the United States of America. So in 1957, we fled Mexico City, came to America, and we lived in Los Angeles with my grandparents. And uh, about a year later, my father decided that he was going to uh, behave and he was pleading that he wanted to come back to live with us. And uh, my mom allowed him to come back. I was upset because I didn't want to see him ever again. And so what happened over all those years now is that my father came home to America and began to drink and had a good job and uh, was working, making the money, but at the same time, he came every night and drank every night and very abusive to the point that I was so aggressive that I, I never drank. Uh, I mean, I, I used to get drunk once in a while, but uh, I didn't want to be like my father, abusive or to become a drunkard or an alcoholic. But over the years of abuse as a child, in high school is where my violence began, really real heavy stuff, where I didn't want to obey people. I was in athletics, I was playing baseball, and uh, I was doing really well, but the, what got me in trouble constantly is my temper, my violence. And I was constantly kicked out of school and in school, out of school, and finally the police, you know, were coming on campuses and they would take me to jail and let me out of jail, and I never got to go to prison, so I thank God for that, but uh, my friend that I grew up with is here with me. We've known each other for almost 35 years. And one of the things that happened in my, in my personal life at that time is that by the time I was 18 years of age, I was so violent and so angry that my goal was to kill my father because I just hated him for what he had done to us and what he did to my mother. And so at the age of 18 years of age, I was at a party and I got into a fight with some young men from another school and I ended up hurting him pretty bad. And so they uh, arrested me. They came to school and arrested me, and they took me to jail. And uh, they gave me the opportunity either to go into the United States Marine Corps or to go to prison. So I said, well, I'll take the Marine Corps before prison. And so they, I went into the United States Marine Corps in 1966, July the 5th. And I was thinking that I was escaping everything that had happened to my life. But things began to become worse and worse because when I got into the United States Marine Corps, uh, what happened is uh, I wanted to be the best. And I knew that I was going to go to Vietnam, so what I did is I, I just really, you know, did everything and listened to everything that they had to teach me. And I, I as a matter of fact, I came out as, uh, with a PFC out of boot camp. I got the high PT men out of 500 points. I got 498 points in the physical test. And so what happened is when I came out, I went to further training. I had my 30-day leave, and in uh, December of uh, December the 23rd, 1966, I was in the jungles of Vietnam. And now I decided that since I am in Vietnam, I have the license to kill. 
and I got it put into a platoon called Alpha Company 1-7, which was a company of special forces, uh, recon forces in the Marines. And we were, uh, uh, there were seven of us that made a pact between each other that we would never take any Charlies alive, that when we would go out and we would capture any Viet Cong, that we would not bring them back alive. So what we did is we began to go out into reconnaissance, which means we go out on patrols and we go over the enemy lines and we would wait overnight overlooking the villages. And during the, about five o'clock in the morning, as the VC were coming out of their hooches, out of their little houses, and they were coming out, what we would do is we would surround the little houses and we would come in and we would murder all the women, all the children, and all the Viet Cong. And this went on for about 11 months until finally uh, they thought that I was flipping out and I, I began to see my friends not only be killed through booby traps and through mines and all kinds of different things that happened in firefights. And um, I decided that I had only like a month and a half to do and I wasn't going to vow to go out and get killed like the rest of the people. So I rebelled against the government. And what happened is that they sent me to a psychiatrist. And so when uh, the psychiatrist talked to me, I told him that if he didn't get me out of the country, that I would kill him. And so he wrote me a piece of paper real fast and gave it to me. And so I went back to Captain Norris and I gave him my piece of paper and he says, Reese, pack up, you're going home. And so I thought that I was leaving the jungles of Vietnam, going home. But when I got to Da Nang Air Force Base, there were some military police waiting for me. And they put, uh, actually they handcuffed my hands and they handcuffed my feet. And they put me in this 130 and they set me in the seat and they strapped me in. And they took me to Travis Air Force Base where I landed. And they took me to Oakland Naval Hospital called Project 49A. Dr. Wilson, the psychologist, and they locked me up for six months. That's why I ended up. And I was totally insane. I was with all these guys that I thought were crazy. I wasn't crazy, but they were. And it was just a whole constant thing going to therapy. And I just couldn't hang out with that. I just couldn't handle it. Because I knew that I was sane and I wasn't crazy. And so what I would do is we'd sit on therapy and it was, you know, kind of like a group therapy thing. And when they would come to me and begin to ask me about my past, I would start getting mad. And I ended up fighting everybody, getting a fight with, a, you know, all the people that were on the board. And so they ended up taking me out and putting me in a straight jacket and putting me away. And until finally six months later, Dr. Wilson called, you know, called me and says, Reese, we can't put up with this anymore. We're going to give you a dishonorable discharge. We're going to let you go. I said, great, I'll take it. So they wrote to Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, they sent me to Camp Pendleton where I was waiting for my discharge to come back. I had been writing to this woman by the name of Sharon, which was a missionary's daughter. And uh, we had kind of grown up together in high school. We never were boyfriend and girlfriend. We fell in love through letters with Viet through Vietnam, writing to each other. And what happened is that as I was waiting for my discharge, uh, they allowed me to, uh, when, I, when I came back, what happened is that my wife was backslidden and uh, she got pregnant. And so we had to get married. So we got married and her parents didn't say anything to me. They knew that God was going to do a work. They were so kind and gracious to me. And I never wanted her to get an abortion in any way, even though I was a heathen. I said, man, I'll marry you because I love you and we'll have our child. And so what happened during this time that I was waiting for my discharge to come back, the discharge finally came back and they let me out with an honorable discharge by the convenience of the government. I got a two-year early out. So when I got out, I thought that I would go back and I would begin to behave in a better way. But <coughs> what happened is that I went back and began to hang out in my old hometown and began to hang out with my friends and went back to not only drinking, but went back to violence. And at that point in time, I was working 
and I was training in the martial arts. I was in Kung Fu Sensu with uh, Jimmy H. Wu, and my whole desire was to become the greatest martial artman in the whole world. And I, I studied under Jimmy Wu for 28 years. And so when I, when, I, when I was accomplishing all these goals that I had for my life, as I was doing that for the first five and a half years of my marriage, my marriage began to go down the tubes because I was committing adultery. I was going out of my wife. I was coming home and verbally and physically abusing my beautiful wife that God had given to me, which I didn't know at that time. And after five and a half years of physical abuse and verbal abuse and my wife praying for me, uh, she decided to leave me. And so that night when I came home, I decided that if she was going to leave me, nobody else would have her. So I decided that I would take her and my two sons at that time, Raul and Shane Jr., and I would kill them, and then I would shoot it out with the police, and then they could kill me, and then everything would be over with. Well, that night that I came home, she was at church. It was Easter Sunday night. And nobody was home and I saw that her bags were packed and she was getting ready to leave me. So I went to my closet, I got my rifle, loaded up my rifle with 18 rounds and I began to destroy the house as I was going around because I was just so mad and so angry. And as I went to break my TV, I hit the TV and the TV came on. And <laughs> coincidence? No, I don't think so. Uh, and there's with this guy, you know, this bald-headed guy standing there, and he was talking about love. And every time he would talk about love, I wanted to shoot him, you know what I'm saying? I was so mad, because I didn't want to hear about love. And he began to talk about God's love, and how God loved me, and how God can cleanse me, and wash me from all my sins, and forgive me. And as the Word of God was coming out of that TV, it was like the archer shooting the arrow, and it was going through my heart. And every time an arrow would hit my heart, I would become softer and softer until I finally fell on my knees. And for the first time in my whole life, I began to cry like a baby and I began to ask Jesus Christ to come into my life. I pleaded for my life to Him. And when He came into my life that night, I went out looking for my wife because I couldn't find her. And so I, I, when I finally you know, went to the church and she was gone, I came home and I heard her crying inside because the house had been destroyed. And I knocked on the door. I said, Sharon, can you please let me in? It's, it's raw. She started crying. She said, I can't let you in. I said, please let me in. I said, I, I, I am born again. And so she opened the door like this with the latch on it. And she kind of looked at me and I smiled at her. And I said, Sharon, I've accepted the Lord. I'm born again. And she closed the door right on my face. And she didn't want to open the door because she didn't believe me. So she finally opened the door and she led me in the house. And for about a year and a half, she began to see my life change. Immediately, I went and got me a Bible. I went to a bookstore. I didn't know how to buy a Bible. I said, I want to buy a Bible. So I bought a big family Bible, you know. <laughs> and then, remember, it was the time of the hippies. So I, I began, I, I really want to be a witness for Jesus Christ. So I said, you know what? I want to get me something so I can tell people I'm a Christian. The Bible is not just good enough. So remember they sell those little fish, you know, that little fishes with the Greek writing on it? They have small ones or big ones or real big ones. I got me the biggest tuna I could find. <laughs> And so I got me a leather strap and this big tuna man and I put it on my chest. And I was walking around and, and, and when the car lights would hit, it just it'd shine, you know. And so I was real zealous for God. And so I went back to my old high school, you know, and I wanted to share with the kids. And the principal, vice principal wouldn't let me in and they called the police on me. The police came. And finally after praying and, and God gave me the desire to go back, they led me to the high school. And I went back to minister the gospel for about six months. Kids didn't want to hear anything. They would throw milk and cake on me, and I just went, oh, Lord, give me five minutes so I can get even with these kids, you know. Because I, I don't take this from people. But the Lord was teaching me. 
God was teaching me a, a lot of things. And after six and a half months of being in the high school and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, one day I just got up on top of this bench, you know, about 2,000 kids out there, and I began to read out of the gospel of John, just reading the gospel, not yelling, not screaming, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And these kids began to sit on the grass. And I gave an altar call, and about 500 kids got on their knees and accepted Christ. And that began the ministry of Calvary Chapel. And so it's been kind of exciting to be able to see, not only in my life, but in your life, what God intends to do in your life. You're not here by coincidence. Too much is given, much more is required. God has put you in one of the greatest schools of all to learn about God and about His Son, Jesus Christ, and to take those talents and those gifts that God has given to you and to use those things for His glory to bring honor and glory to His name. And one thing that I thought about that I would speak to you this morning just a little bit is concerning the spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in every day. I don't know about you, but I find myself that I am constantly on a spiritual warfare. I remember when I was in Vietnam and I was trained, you know, when I was first being trained for spiritual, uh, for, for jungle warfare. They were training us about mines and booby traps and all these things and about K-47s and, and uh, you know, how to go into the tunnels and look for the VC and then how to go at night and, and use the infrared, you know, machine so that we could actually see the enemy. And all the training that I received in boot camp and also the other training that I received after boot camp you know, it wasn't really, it didn't really hit, you know, home until I actually had to put it to practice in the jungles of Vietnam. Then it became real. And I remember the words of my instructors. Because as you were sitting in class in the Marine Corps, if you ever fell asleep, it would be the last time you fall asleep in class. Because the GIs, actually the DI would come by and he would have this little stick that he would carry with him. And what he would do is he would hit you in the back of the ear as hard as he could and knock you off the seat. Because, why? I didn't understand. I thought he was mean. You know, but what happened is what he was doing is he was trying to keep you awake not only to learn how to dismantle your weapon and put it together immediately because one day it would save your life. And that's what the Word of God is like. The Word of God will save your life if you study it, if you meditate upon it, if you really seek the Lord. He will teach you. And so one of the things that I share with you this morning is that we are in a spiritual warfare. Yes, we are. The Bible talks about that. And one of the things that I, have, I, have, I understand concerning spiritual warfare is that Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against rulers of darkness of this world and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, we are in a spiritual warfare and we do have an enemy and that enemy is Satan and his demons that are constantly trying to destroy you and to destroy me and I never realized that until I came to Jesus Christ and I also realized that as I was studying the book of Daniel that Daniel himself was one of the greatest men probably that ever lived and you remember in that, night, in that 10th chapter of Daniel when Daniel was praying for three weeks he was praying he was actually denying himself. He was praying and fasting for God to show him the things that he was showing him. He says that as he prayed, one of the angels came and began to share with him that the reason that his prayer had taken such a long time for three weeks for the answer to come back is because the king of Persia 
against the king of Grisha. Remember? There was a spiritual warfare going on between heaven and earth. Between the good angels and the bad angels. So I realize that as we sit here, even here this morning, that we need to understand that we are under warfare. And it's a spiritual warfare where I cannot see my enemy, but the enemy is there. I don't have to go around being afraid of my enemy. No, why? Because greater is he that is in me than he that is of the world. I thank God for Jesus Christ and for his love and for his grace and his mercy and for the training that he's given to me through his word. But I also understand as I read and I study the scriptures that this enemy is constantly coming. His purpose is to do what? He's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. John 10.10 says this, The thief does not come except to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. Notice the difference between Jesus and the enemy. The enemy doesn't want you to have life abundantly. The enemy wants to destroy you. He's come to rob and to steal and to kill. And I think it's wise for us that as we begin to look at the spiritual warfare that we find ourselves this morning under, let us begin by looking first of all that Satan is a deceiver. He's a liar. He deceives people. It says in the book of John chapter 8, 44, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not understand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks a lie and he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. You see, Satan has been a liar from the beginning from the time he rebelled against God. He tried to deceive our first parents. We see that in Revelation 12, 9 it says about the great dragon. And so the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he, has cast, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then in 2 Corinthians 11:3 it says about him, Paul says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. And then in 2 John 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And we surely see that today. There are many deceivers that have been deceived by Satan's lie. For he is the great deceiver. Now, what is Satan's target? Satan's target is your mind. He wants to destroy your mind. He wants to affect your mind. I remember when I came back from Vietnam in just about a couple of years ago that I was healed my mind where I used to have flashbacks. I used to have nightmares about Vietnam and the war. And it was really scary because sometimes my wife would be laying in bed with me and in the middle of the night I would wake up in deep sweats and I would be flashing back to the jungles of Vietnam where even one time I kicked my wife out of bed. I mean, I almost hurt her real bad. And these things that the enemy tries to flash within our minds, he tries to destroy us, he tries to take us from the focus that Jesus Christ has given to us as we've come to the cross and we have crucified ourselves to the cross, the flesh and the desires of the flesh 
as God begins to give me now a new mind in Jesus Christ. But He desires to come after your mind. That is His target. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says this, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. Now, the question I want to ask you, why would Satan want to attack your mind? Why would he be so interested in your mind today? Well, listen. Because your mind is the part of the image of God where God communicates with you and me and reveals His will to you and to me. He wants to take you away from the will of God. He wants to deceive you. He wants to lead you astray. He doesn't want you to be fired up for Him. He doesn't want you to be, you know, He doesn't want Jesus Christ to be number one in your life. He always wants to intercept. He always wants to come into our minds and He wants to distract our minds as we're putting our minds in Jesus Christ. Now Satan does have a weapon. And his weapon that he uses against your mind is he uses lies against you. He lies to you just like he lied to Adam and Eve in the garden. He began to share with Eve. Remember in the garden of Eden, he, first of all, he questioned the word of God. Indeed, God has said... He questioned the word of God concerning Adam and Eve in the garden as Eve was sitting there in the garden as her husband was somewhere else. He came and began to deceive the weaker vessel. And what's interesting in that question is that also he denied the word of God. You shall surely not die in Genesis 3-4. He began to lie to the woman, to deceive her, and to actually ask her to take of the fruit of the tree, which God had forbidden to do that. And then thirdly, he substituted his own will. In Genesis 3, 5, he said, You will be like gods. You will be just like gods. The, the whole new philosophy of the New Age movement. Think about that. And then fourthly, he desires worship and service for himself. And we see that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 to 10, when he came to Jesus. And he said, Look, if you only bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And what did Jesus Christ do? Jesus Christ Himself came back and He came and fought against the enemy by giving Him the Word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. One thing about God is that He accomplishes His will on earth through His truth, which His Word is truth. This is important that we understand. In Psalm 119, 160 it says, The entirety... Of, the, of your word, God, is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. You see, Satan accomplishes his purposes through lies. In 2 Corinthians 11, 13 and 14, he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Secondly, Satan is a counterfeit or an imitator. He's a counterfeit or an imitator. For example, there are many counterfeits among Christians, if you know what I'm talking about, not real Christians. It says this in Matthew 13, 38. The field, he says, is the world and the good seed stands and the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And then in 2 Corinthians 11:26. Paul says, I have been constantly on the move 
I have been in danger from rivers and in danger of bandits and in danger from my own countrymen and in danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city and in danger in the country and in danger at sea and in danger from false brothers. You see, false brothers that had come in with lies. They were trying to deceive the church. And then secondly, there is a counter, a counterfeit gospel. We see it today among many people. Galatians 6, uh, 1, 6, 8 says, I am astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really not another gospel at all. Eventually, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the warning. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one preached to you, let him be eternally condemned or damned. God has a lot to say to those that are trying to deceive people from the gospel of Jesus Christ, from the true gospel. And then there are also counterfeit ministers. We can see them today on television. We can hear them on radio too. We see that these men counterfeit the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians again, 11, 14, and 15. He says, And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades himself as an angel of light. And it is not surprising then that if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve to be. So he's warning us concerning these counterfeits. There's also a counterfeit of righteousness. Romans 10.3 says, Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not, they did not submit to God's true righteousness. You see, we need to be careful of this. And yet, some of you that are here, you know, you're well taught. You know the Word of God. But there are people outside of these walls that are being attacked by deception and by heresy by the enemy as he's using his apostles of light to go out and deceive people from the knowledge of the true church. And then finally there is a true counterfeit in the church. Actually, there's a counterfeit church too. In Revelations 2.9 he says this. <coughs> I, know your afflic- says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich, and I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. See, there is, there's also people in the church that can be counterfeit. And I think we need to be careful because Satan's purpose is to make you ignorant of God's will in your life. Satan does not want you to understand the true will of God in your life. Listen, Satan attacks God's word because God's word reveals what? God's will for my life. That's what the scripture says. Satan attacks God's Word because God's Word reveals God's will for my life. Psalm 40, verse 8. I desire to do Your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then secondly, apart from God's Word, we have no sure understanding of the will of God. No sure understanding for the will of God. Psalm 33.11 says, But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, and the purposes of His heart through all generations. 
And then God wants you and me to know God's perfect will for our life. Listen, Acts 22:14. And then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know His will and to see the righteous one, Jesus, and to hear words from His own mouth. So we know that God does want us to know His perfect will. Now, God wants you not only to know it, but to understand it. And understanding it is very important because there are so many who do not understand this will of God. Ephesians 5.17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what is the Lord's will for your life. And as you begin to understand the will of the Lord, then you'll begin to be nourished by the will of God. As John 4.34 says, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of Him who sent me to finish His work. And then, doing His will brings to you and to my life great benefits. 1 John 2.17 The world and its desires are passing away, but the man who does the will of God will live forever and ever and ever and ever. You see, our views, our looking to eternity is forever and ever and ever, where people today are only looking to the temporal, where we are looking to the eternal. That's the most important thing. For what you do here in learning, in knowledge, and in wisdom, and you take it and you put it all together compacted, and then when you graduate and you go out to the world, and you put it to practice, the only things that will ever last are the things that you do for Him eternally. Keep that in mind. Because the greatest of that is love that Jesus Christ has given to each one of us here this morning. And then I think it's important that as we come to that place of the Word of God, that we have some responsibilities in each one of our lives concerning the Word of God. Let me give you, I think I have four responsibilities. Number one, we must know God's Word for sure. We must know Him and the power of His resurrection. If you don't know God's Word, then we are not responsible to the Word of God. Listen, John 16, 13, 15 says, that when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth and He will not speak of His own. He will speak only what He hears and He will tell you what is yet to come. John 16, 14. He will bring glory to me, Jesus, by talking, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I have said that the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. And this is what God has left for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, to lead us, to guide us, and to teach us into all truth. Secondly, we must begin to memorize God's Word. Memorization of God's Word. Psalm 37, 31 says, The law of His God is in His heart, and His feet will not slip. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 19, 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. By knowing and meditating on God's word, it will keep you from sin. It will help you. It's like a sword. You use your weapon against the enemy. Thirdly, we must meditate on God's word. Joshua 1, 8 says, do not let this book of the law 
depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And then you will have prosperous and successful ways. Psalm 1-2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. Fourthly, we must delight in God's word. Psalm 119-03, How sweet are your words in my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then 114 says, You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. And then 147 says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word in meditation. Psalm 119.48 says, My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises, O God. I like that. Meditating on the promises that God has made for you and for me. And finally, we must do what? We must use God's word against the enemy. John 14, 26. But the Counselor or the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. I think it's important that as we come to the end of knowing about spiritual warfare, that we do have an enemy and the enemy is constantly trying to come against my mind, trying to deceive me. And the important thing about my own personal life is that I need not only to know him, but to know the power of his resurrection in my life. And one thing that I did when I first came to Jesus Christ is that I decided that I was going not only to read the Bible, but to meditate on God's word and to make sure that even as when in Vietnam, that rifle that was given to me would actually defend me and save my life, the same thing with the Word of God. This is your sword. And you need to have it with you, and you need to know it, and you need to live it, so that other people may see the power of God in your life and working through your life, even as God has given you His grace and His love and His mercies for each one of us here this morning. Father... We come before you this dear Lord to ask you this morning for all these students, Father, that you touch them, that you anoint them, God, and that you speak to their own hearts in a mighty way, Father, that they would take advantage of studying here at the Master's College, Father, and learning from all their instructors everything they're being, Father, prepared for ministry, prepared for life, Lord. For Lord, we understand that life is a battle. And sometimes life can become just very disappointing, Lord. But Lord, we thank you that no matter what happens, even like Job, blessed be the name of the Lord Jehovah God. We stand by you, Father. Because we understand that we can never lose if we put our trust and faith in you, Lord. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ and for the work that you already have begun in us and that you're going to complete through us. I thank you for these people, Father. I pray for the professors. I pray for the student body. And Lord, I ask you to provide all the needs here at the Master's College and continue to bless your people. Be with Dr. MacArthur. Touch him, anoint him. You continue to use him and we pray for his wife. We pray for his children. And Lord, we ask you to continue to bless him. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.